Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. I was a teenage fundamentalist. We say this quite often, that we're excited about today's guest. But today there is a lot of excitement and we're up Australian time at 5.30 in the morning. That's how excited we are to uh, welcome our guest today. And Troy, I'm going to throw to you to introduce our guest because you, this is someone who has been very instrumental in your deconstruction over time. So I, I want you to take the honour of introducing our, our guest. Yeah, I didn't want to fawn too much over our guest when we were discussing this and before we hit record, because I wanted to say this online, that this person has had such a profound impact on me in my deconstruction and in my undoing of some of my my own fundamentalism, and that is Dr. Bart Ehrman. So, Dr. Bart Ehrman, we are extremely pleased to have you on our show, and I'm going to fanboy you hard through this whole interview, so get ready for it. But welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Well, uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much, and I, I apologize for dragging you out of bed at this ungodly hour, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad you did because I'm looking forward to this very much. Yeah, well, we we would, wouldn't miss this for the world, for sure. So, Bart we usually start off our interviews by asking people, were you a teenage fundamentalist? Yes, indeed. <laughs> my later teenage years, my early teenage years, I was a active in the Episcopal Church growing up, so uh, American version of uh, Anglicanism. And um, just by happenstance, it happened to be the church in town that my mom thought uh, actually uh, the preacher actually, the priest actually spoke about God <laughs> as opposed to a lot of the churches, the uh, liberal churches in town. So we went there uh, but when I was 15. And so I was an altar boy and I was, I was active in the church, but I wasn't, you know, overly religious outside of church. Uh, when I was 15, I had a born again experience through a, uh, a youth for Christ club, sort of a group of high school students meeting with a, a fellow who, uh, who had gone to Moody Bible Institute and convinced me that I needed to become a Christian, <laughs> whatever I had been before. And at that point, I became a um, very committed uh, evangelical Christian and went off to the fundamentalist um, Moody Bible Institute uh, when I was 17. So after high school, then I, I went went on. And yeah, so I was definitely a fundamentalist for, um, I don't know, probably 
however many years, a number of years <laughs> uh, before I before I left the fundamentalist side of Christianity and then became a um, returned to more of a kind of a liberal form of Christianity that didn't subscribe to the absolute inerrancy of the Bible. And eventually, over a period of time, I ended up leaving the faith altogether. So that now I'm not uh, a Christian in any recognizable sense, uh, other than I try to implement what I think are the the uh, ethical teachings of Jesus to some extent. I, I don't want to go into exactly where you're at yet, because I sort of want that to be a bit of a reveal. But tell us what happened then. You you obviously went to Moody Bible Institute. You started to study, and it sounds to me like in some ways you maybe studied your way out of the faith, or was that leaving the faith for a different reason? I, I didn't study my way out of the faith at Moody. I was I was very gung-ho about Moody, and I was um, completely committed to the inerrancy of the Bible and the gospel truth as I understood it, and was uh, quite evangelistic as a, uh, as a fundamentalist Christian. I was probably more than a little obnoxious <laughs> with friends and family. I went to, after that, I went to, I finished my degree at Wheaton College, which was uh, Billy Graham's alma mater. And for me, this was a step towards liberalism. <laughs> and uh, But there I majored in English, and I started reading English and history and philosophy, and it expanded my horizons significantly from what I had had at Moody. Uh, I remained a, an evangelical Christian, but then I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. I wanted to go there because my, uh, my passion at the time, uh, I had taken Greek at Wheaton, and I became quite passionate about studying the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and trying to understand them. Uh, and the expert in Greek manuscripts uh, happened to teach at Princeton Theological Seminary, a man named Bruce Metzger, who was a world-class scholar, and I wanted to study with him. So I went there. And it was there that I started changing my uh, fundamentalist views. And after a couple of years of intensely studying the Bible in Greek and then the Hebrew Bible in, in Hebrew, I came to realize that, in fact, the Bible is not inerrant. There are, uh, there are contradictions and historical mistakes and lots of different kinds of mistakes. And so that's what led me away from the evangelical community, but it didn't, it didn't lead me away from Christianity per se. It just led me into a different kind of Christianity. It's interesting within that bubble, both Troy and I went to Pentecostal fundamentalist Bible colleges. And while you're there, you're in that whirlpool of reinforcing your beliefs. So I think until you can break out of that space, it's very difficult to start challenging that. Did you find that while, while you were at a more of a fundamentalist uh, institution, that it was just a reinforcing of beliefs all around you and that there wasn't really that opportunity to question it objectively? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The The interesting thing about fundamentalism in its various forms is that uh, each form, it really is a closed system that is internally coherent. It makes it actually makes sense if you grant the premises. And so it's very difficult for somebody to come in from the outside and create any problems in the system because they just don't understand how the system works. But within, it's internally coherent and it makes perfect sense. Uh, and so it takes something Usually it takes something rather um, serious to uh, get somebody out of it. 
when I went to when I went to Princeton, I was I was I was ready for these liberal professors. <laughs> they're going to say Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, you know, and they're going to say this, that, and the other. And I'm ready for them, you know. I had all my arguments lined up because I I'd been very big into apologetics when I was at Moody and somewhat at Wheaton, and so I was I was all geared, you know. But sometimes sometimes somebody will open up, and once you open up to alternative views and actually think about what you yourself are presupposing it. If you're willing to change your mind about something, then sometimes, you know, something will change your mind. Yeah. For what it's worth, I had three years of fundamentalist Bible college, although I did it over four to five, I sort of came and went totally believing. And then I went to a secular university to do some postgraduate studies and my entire faith in the Bible at least came crashing down in less than a year. Hmm. Especially when I was confronted with some different hermeneutical models and and things hmm. like that, it, it, yeah. So so I can totally relate. Maybe not on the same scale as you, but very very similar story. So let's talk about who you are now. You've written, excuse me, I don't know how many eight, seven, eight best selling New York Times best selling books. You've written a whole heap of scholarly texts as well. You've written textbooks for students, for college-level courses, and you hold quite a prestigious position at quite a prestigious university. Could you tell us about who Bart Ehrman is now? It's a little bit strange because when I was in high school, nobody ever would have thought that I'd become a scholar. <laughs> I was I was a good student, but basically I was interested in other things, social life, I like I liked sports. I liked I liked high school debate, and that probably uh, helped me helped me along. It was really when I went to Moody I became this crazily studious person, <laughs> and is because I had such a passion for the Bible that I just wanted to learn everything, and so I became ridiculously disciplined in my studies. And then what that ended up sticking with me for my entire life. Uh, when I moved away from the evangelical tradition, I still was completely interested in early Christianity and the New Testament. So I teach now at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is one of the really great state universities in the U.S., in a department that is one of the best departments of religious studies in the U.S., completely apart from me. They're just fantastic colleagues who know a lot about a lot of things. So I continue to be completely interested. I left, I, I came to Chapel Hill as a Christian. I continued to go to the Episcopal Church. And it was maybe after being in, in North Carolina for about six or seven years, maybe in the early 90s, when I, I left the faith altogether. And it wasn't because of my academic studies. It was because of my wrestling with the problem of why there's suffering in the world. Why there's, uh, if there's a God who's in control and can do whatever he wants and, and is loving, why is there such senseless suffering in the world? I, I could make sense of the sensible suffering, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but there are some completely senseless. And I just, I, I just got to a point, I didn't believe it anymore. But I kept my interest in the Bible and uh, New Testament uh, and early Christianity. So my scholarship now, uh, I started out writing books on technical, technical books on Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and how to analyze and classify them to uh, figure out what the authors originally wrote, since we don't have their originals. These were the kinds of academic books that uh, about six people in the world would have been interested in. <laughs> and uh, then somebody, then an author, the, uh, a publisher convinced me to write a textbook for 
college students on the New Testament. And I thought, well, that'd be fun. That could be a book without any footnotes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so I, I did that and it, it ended up doing well. And so they ended up asking me to do a, a book for a general audience. And so I did a book for a general audience. And then, uh, so after that, I, I've been writing textbooks and serious scholarship and books for general audiences, uh, all about various aspects of early Christianity, not just the New Testament, but that's certainly my probably my major area of expertise. But most of my uh, most of my teaching now and most of my publications are actually on Christianity after the New Testament period. Besides the publisher asking you, what motivated you to start to write books for a popular audience then? Because, I mean, let's face it, that has really expanded your reach. Oh, absolutely. I had no interest in it. When, <laughs> I had no interest in writing a textbook. I had, I had vowed when I was in graduate school, I am never going to write a textbook, and I'm never going to write a popular book about Jesus. I just ain't going to do it. <laughs> I mean, this is like my determination. And so when they asked me to write the textbook, this is Oxford University Press in, in the U.S. out of New York. And th they first asked me to do it. I said, no. <laughs> Called back a couple weeks later. I said, yeah, it's still no. <laughs> and finally, they talked me into doing it. And once I did that, I realized part of my goal as a scholar, even though I was doing these technical Greek manuscript things that nobody's interested in, even though I was doing that, I did have an interest in spreading what I knew to a wider audience, which is why I liked undergraduate teaching. And so I was, I loved having these classes. I would have classes of 400 students and I would think this is fantastic. And then I realized, well, you know, if you write, if you write books for a general audience, you're going to be reaching a wider audience. Uh, and so it, it ended up being like, I, I ended up being kind of surprised to myself that I, I had not wanted to do it. But the reality is that a lot of people won't, won't know this who are outside of the academy, but within the academy, if you write a book for a general audience, that's a mark against you in most universities. Um, you could never get tenure doing that, and it might hurt your chances for tenure uh, because it's understood to be kind of sensationalizing the topic or dumbing things down, not doing serious research. So uh, it's not encouraged. It's starting to get encouraged more and more now, I think. So I didn't have any inclination, but once I did, I realized, oh my God, I can really reach a much broader audience with the kinds of scholarship that has been going on. And so it's really a way of communicating to a wider audience what, what serious biblical scholars have known for a very long time, but haven't told anybody. <laughs> and so that, that, that's the goal. See, Bart, all I'm hearing is you're an evangelical at heart. It's all about how many souls you can reach, isn't it? Look, you got to go, you got to get the masses, you know, and uh, we count people because people count. <laughs> oh, this, this is beautiful. I feel like I'm being preached to by Bart. <laughs> right. Well, he did go to Billy Graham's alma mater, right? So it's, yeah. it's a numbers game. This is true. And there's a great stadium in Melbourne, in Australia, in the city that we live, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And I think it's still Billy Graham that holds the record for the most people who've ever been to that ground for an event, like 140, 150,000 people. People are probably Googling right now and are going to correct me, but it is definitely the highest, highest uh, audience there. So, But what, one thing we also want to touch on is a bit of your personal life. That, uh, your wife, she's also an academic but a Christian. Surely she must be more of a progressive Christian. I mean, she's got Bart Ehrman as her husband, but 
how does this work? How does she respond to your critiques on Christianity? So this is uh, so Sarah and I are on our second marriage, both of us. She's a uh, she's a Shakespeare scholar who has been uh, chair of the Department of English at Duke University and also chair of the theater department. And she is she's a Brit. She's from London. She is a very different kind of academic from me. I'm the kind of rigorous dig down into the ancient languages scholar kind of person. And she's more the European intellectual type of person, philosophically oriented, deeply knowledge about theoretical issues. But she is she does identify as a Christian. She does not identify as an evangelical Christian. She has no connection with evangelical Christianity. She doesn't understand it. She thinks it's completely strange. She likes the uh, she does appreciate the liturgical tradition of the in the Ang- of the Anglican tradition and she she does like sophisticated theology. And so she loves Rowan Williams, uh, but she would have no time for Billy Graham. I suppose most of, most ex-evangelicals know that you know there are there are lots of other kinds of Christianity, and the infighting between Christians is even more severe than Christians with other folk. And she's not in fights with anybody, so she is. I mean, she's a very very liberal Christian. I don't know if she even believes. I don't think she believes in the afterlife. Um, she doesn't believe in like even talking to people about her religion. She's in awe in front of the world. She thinks the world is a place of awe and her religion is a way of kind of expressing that to herself. Do you think she reads your books? She won't. She doesn't read all of them because she says, you know, she doesn't have time to read all of them. <laughs> but she definitely reads my books. Yeah. She, and she's a great, look, I mean, she's an intellectual. She is, she's a real, and she's a very fine writer and a very, and a terrific reader and dialogue partner. But things, you know, the thing that turned me away from Christianity, the the problem of suffering, which, you know, for me is a very big issue. For her, it's a non-issue. She just thinks, you know, I'm barking up the wrong tree. And she thinks that the reason uh, that ultimately that in some sense, I'm, I'm too black and white on issues like this, that I really, that, you know, there's, there's mystery in the world and you shouldn't try and solve everything. Uh, so, but it's not that she, you know, it's not that she's blind or that she's not, not intelligent. Anyone who knows the two of us realizes who's the brains in the family <laughs> and it ain't me, <laughs> but it's just, she just doesn't see things from, uh, I think a lot of us who are evangelical, we're so into like truth, you know, and it's right and it's wrong. And so if something's wrong, then it's wrong. And, you know, she just isn't, like that. It's it's more kind of understanding, exploring the depth of of sophisticated writing. And so she really loves she loves reading Thomas Aquinas, for example, or she loves Augustine. And she just she thinks that these are deep thinkers and that people are really quite silly to 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 kind of write them off because they, they have Christian commitments. Yeah, very good. It's it sounds like in a lot of ways she tempers you which which is great. Now, the reason I, I ask, though, is because both Brian and I have repartnered since leaving the faith, and we've both intentionally found people who are not evangelicals and never were, and um, neither of our partners listen to the podcast anymore. And when, when I take you know some of our work that I'm really proud of to, to my wife and say, you know, have a listen to this, she's like, no, I'm not listening to that. So, you know, she, she, she's never been an ev- evangelical and doesn't really care. 
So she's just not interested. Yeah. She, yeah, she's just not interested at all. Yeah. Except, you know, she's happy to share my successes when things go well for us in exactly. the podcast, yeah, yeah. but she really yeah. doesn't give a damn. Okay. Well, Sarah does listen to my podcast without any prompting. She just tells me, oh, yeah, I listen to this. And she just does. I think it's because my host on my podcast um, is a Brit. <laughs> and so a, a woman, a Brit woman, and she kind of likes that. <laughs> oh, so it's someone that speaks English. Yes, exactly. Speaks <laughs> real English. <laughs> In terms of your scholarship, in terms of your position within the academy, where do your views position you in relation to other biblical scholars? And I'm asking this because people are going to be saying, is he an outlier? Um, what do the, the bulk of you know biblical scholars believe? Because I know that uh, a lot of people want to write you off. There will be ad hominem arguments against you as a person and against you as a scholar. And, and we've actually seen some of those in our Facebook group, which is really annoyed me, to be honest, because as I've already said to you, I'm a fan. And I'm like, well, let's just stick with the arguments rather than attacking Bart. But I would like to know, are you among the majority, your views? Do you, does that position you among the majority of biblical scholars? Or are you an outlier? Well, I'd say most evangelicals don't think I'm an outlier. They just think I'm a liar. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Biblical scholarship is unusual. Throughout, throughout the world, especially in the English-speaking world, because almost all biblical scholars are, are Christian in one way or another. And just as evangelical Christianity uh, continues to grow while mainline Christianity continues to shrink, uh, that's true within scholarship as well. So it's just because of the numbers that you have, you have a lot of evangelical scholars out there. Within biblical scholarship, there tends to be, to put it in kind of simplistic terms, there tends to be kind of a split between people who have particular religious commitments and their scholarship always verifies their religious commitments and those who take a more historical approach and go wherever, you know, wherever they think the evidence is leading, whatever it does to their religious views or, or their non-religious views. And so sometimes people talk about critical scholars and versus scholars who would be not as critical because, you know, if you have a scholar who absolutely believes uh, and has believed since, uh, since she was 13 that the Bible has no errors in it and she is confronted with something that is just a flat-out contradiction and she says it's not an error, surely, I mean, she's saying that for a reason. It's not anybody else looking at this would say, well, that's a contradiction. And she, no, that's not a contradiction. So, a critical scholar is somebody who just does it does it on historical and literary grounds, without trying to presuppose what the answer is going to be uh, for any for any any issue dealing with the Bible or New Testament. Among historians, uh, historical scholars in the English speaking world, my the, virtually everything that I say is uh, pretty much a majority view. And this is not, I mean, so like if you go if you go throughout the United States and you just go to any major university that is not an evangelical school or may, possibly a conservative Roman Catholic school. If you go, but even there, even including those with the major universities, uh, the views that I stake out are either the ones that most people have or the ones that pe most people, if they don't have, they have no problem with a particular problem. They just think it's wrong, but it's not wrong. You know, it's just, it's one of the options they think is less probable. And so that's, I mean, that's just true up and down the line. So I, I wrote that you mentioned my textbook that I wrote. I wrote it back in the nineties. It got published in, uh, I think 1997. 
And so what that, what, you know, what is that? <laughs> How many years ago? That is? 26 years. It, it's been the number one seller in the market all those years in universities and colleges in North America. And so it's not being used because people disagree with it. <laughs> it's because it's presenting the mainline views. People don't want to believe they're the mainline views because they, they want to think that, well, you know, you're just being, you're this radical atheist teaching at a liberal school. And it's just not true. I mean, there are things that I say that are, are controversial, even among scholars, but the basic lines I take on just about everything, you know, the New Testament has contradictions in it. The Gospels uh, have non-historical material in them. It's difficult to know what Jesus said and did. Some of the letters of Paul, the claim to be written by Paul, were not written by Paul. I mean, just go down the entire list. This is just standard stuff that's been around for decades. And the reason people think it's weird is because they've never heard it before. And they haven't heard it before because the people who write books about the New Testament and Jesus have tended to be evangelicals or people with conservative views. Scholars simply have found it difficult to communicate or not difficult. My friends, my friends through graduate school, they just have, they, they either are not interested in communicating to a broader audience or they're incapable of doing it. Incapable, not because they're bad people or bad scholars, but you know, once you start learning a technical field, it's very hard not to, not to talk in the jargon. And I've got friends who cannot talk about something like the relationship of Matthew and Mark without talking, without saying things like, well, when you do a redactional analysis of two of the synoptic gospels, then you, you know, they just, and they, they like, as if people know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, unless you've had some training, you don't know redactional analysis and synoptic. What's that? What? <laughs> so what I try to do is I take this, this kind of scholarship that, by the way, I learned when I was being trained to be a minister at Princeton Theological Seminary, virtually everything I teach, either I learned in seminary or it was the kind of thing I could have learned at seminary if we, if we had talked about this thing. And I try to make it for a general audience. So, Bart, you are saying before that uh, the evangelical or the Christians call you a liar, not an outlier. But what about the evangelical scholarship, uh, the scholars? You know, mm -hmm. what do they think of you? Do you have a relationship with them? Is this something that you can actually enter into some sort of semblance of a, a conversation with them? Yeah, is it civil? Oh, oh, yeah. No, absolutely. No, look, scholars are scholars. I mean, even evangelical scholars, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are evangelical scholars. And for some reason, I don't know if it's this way among your people you all reach out to, but among evangelicals in in the US, there's a kind of idea that like I hate Christians <laughs> and that I'm out to get Christianity somehow. The people I run around with are almost all Christians, <laughs> committed Christians. I mean last night I had dinner with two of my two my two best friends who are ordained Presbyterian ministers <laughs> you know who for, are in the church. It's a, they're friends with you because they're trying to save you. That's what, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. These evangelical scholars—they're not out to save. I mean, some are the really hardcore, the apologists, um, like my friend Mike Lacona. Mike is a friend of mine, and he's an apologist. We completely disagree on things, and he's worried for my soul, and I'm actually worried for his soul. Seriously, I think not—not not that not for his afterlife. But, you know, I think that people like him are smart enough to realize that what he's saying just isn't true sometimes, but that you know, I don't know if he can admit it to himself or not. 
And he thinks, you know, he probably thinks the same thing about me. And we've actually, he does. We've had conversations about it. But most of my evangelical friends, they just, you know, we're doing scholarship. Uh, we're not, you know, we're, when, when, when we're talking, we're talking about scholarship. We're not talking about the salvation of our souls. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host Gavrielle Hakoen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our link tree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So Bart, let's talk about your new book because you've written a new book called Armageddon. It's a book about revelation. It's a book about the end times, which is another key tenant of evangelicalism. But what brought you to write this book? I've had a long-standing interest in the book of Revelation. I wrote this book for the same reason I've written a lot of books, which is that when people read books about Revelation, they tend to be kind of on one side. <laughs> and the view of scholars is very rarely represented in the popular audience. When I was when I was a fundamentalist, we we believed that Hal Lindsey was right in his late great planet Earth that uh, Jesus was going to return for the rapture before 1988. And we, uh, we taught that. And this is, and I continued to believe that, that for a long time, that's how you interpret revelation as a prediction of things that are yet to come. People, uh, most people don't read the book of revelation. Uh, most Christians don't read revelation because most Christians just think it's too weird and bizarre and they can't figure it out. And so they don't bother with it. The ones who do read it tend to be evangelicals or fundamentalists who think that it's predicting what's going to happen soon, and they read it in light of the headlines of the newspaper. Um, and so, whatever the current crisis is, whether you know in 1945 is the you know Hitler and Mussolini, and then then later is the Iraq War. Now it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it's whatever it is is fulfilling what God predicted in the Book of Revelation. It's the COVID jab, which is the mark of the beast, but COVID, obviously. Yep, the jab, mark of the beast, right? I thought, you know, this is one area where it would be really interesting to write a book to explain what historians say about the book of Revelation, as opposed to people who are using it to predict our future. Because for a very long time, historians have known that the book of Revelation is not predicting our imminent future. And so I started out writing the book to be simply that to be simply to show the contrast between historical views and prophecy writing views. In the course of my working hard on the book, I started changing my focus a little bit. Uh, That still is a major part of the book. It's how I begin the book, trying to show why historians don't think 
that this book is predicting the future and to show why, show why it just, you know, it's not an accident. Every, virtually every generation since the book was written has had people thinking, oh, now it's being fulfilled in our time and they can use the book to prove it. And, you know, it was happening when, when I was a fundamentalist in my seventies and then in, in the, not in my time, but in the seventies, then it was happening in the eighties and the nineties. It's still happening. And, and everybody who predicts has made the prediction has been completely wrong. <laughs> and so surely that should wake somebody up to make them think. But what happens is you get these prophecy writers who say, yeah, everybody before me was wrong because they misunderstood that Revelation 13, you know, and they have some little detail that's wrong. And now if you interpret it correctly, it's referring to, you know, 2024, <laughs> you know, not to. And so, but the whole problem is that an entire approach is wrong. Schol- historical scholars for a long time have set forth an alternative view that I myself embraced for almost my entire career until about five years ago, (laughs) which now I think is also wrong. The more scholarly view is that you will find um, by even, even, I mean, very committed Christians. This is how it was taught at at Princeton Seminary and in most seminaries that are not fundamentalist, is that the book of Revelation is not making predictions about our future. It's an ancient apocalypse like other ancient apocalypses this that is trying to provide hope for those who are suffering now. And so it's a book about God's ultimate love for his people and how he's going to bring them justice and he's and to provide them with hope in the midst of their suffering. That that is the common way for historical scholars to read the book. And so part of my book is to show that the futuristic interpretation is wrong. But the other part of my book is to show why that interpretation is also probably wrong. So this this is not a new view you know, that I'm coming up with. It, it's a new view that I've come to that other people have had. And I've just realized this view is right. And part of my book is to explain why the book Revelation might be read by especially liberal Christian scholars as a message of hope. But in the end, it's really not a message of hope. So did St. John actually write the book of Revelation? And if so, or if not, why do you believe so? Well, somebody named John wrote the book of Revelation. (laughs) And so um, the author tells us his name, John. That makes a kind of interesting paradox because the gospel of John does not claim to be written by somebody named John, but we call that book John. (laughs) <laughs> the book Revelation does claim to be written by somebody named John, and we don't call that book John. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, the issue, I think the issue you're raising is, was the author of the Gospel of John also the author of the book of Revelation, and was that person Jesus' disciple, John the son of Zebedee? Uh, and I think the answer to both questions uh, is no. The debate about the authorship of the book of Revelation goes all the way back in early Christianity. This is uh, one of those books that had a very hard time making it into the New Testament scriptures. Uh, it was, in, by some counts, the last book finally to be accepted. And one of the arguments against it was that, that ancient Christian scholars knew that whoever wrote this book did not write the Gospel of John. Um, we, have a, uh, we have a letter from an Orthodox bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, from the year 260, a man named Dionysius, who did a who wrote a uh, an examination of the writing style of the Gospel of John and the Apocalypse of John, and he showed this cannot be the same person. And the philological arguments he mounted 
are still relevant today. I mean, he was right. He's right. This, it's not the same style. It's not only not the same style, it's not the same views of any of much of anything, which we could get into if you really want to, but it's not that that important. But it's just these two books are very different from each other. Nothing said nothing within either book says they're written by the person who wrote the other one. Uh, and they probably were not written by uh, the author of the other one. And neither of these books, in my view, could have been written by John, the son of Zebedee. Um, for one thing, uh, both of these books appear to have been written sometime in the 90s of the Common Era uh, for reasons that you know I go into in my book, and they're fairly standard views among scholars. But John was a disciple, an adult disciple of Jesus in the 20s. I mean, so you have these traditions of him being a very old man when he wrote these books, but really— I mean, he's in his 90s or something. I, that just uh, Given life expectancy in the ancient world, that seems kind of unlikely. But more than that, the, what we know about John, the son of Zebedee, is that he was a, he worked, he was a fisherman in rural Aramaic-speaking Galilee. We know about the social world of Aramaic-speaking Galilee. People there did not get Greek educations. They didn't get educations. Kids didn't go to school unless they were members of the upper crust, uh, rich elite, and fishermen were not members of the upper crust, rich elite. I think John certainly was illiterate. Even if he could read anything, he couldn't compose anything. And if he could compose anything, he couldn't compose anything in Greek. <laughs> and so I don't think there's any way in the world either of these books was written by John, the son of Zebedee. What about the epistles of John then? Are they linked to to either the gospel or revelation, or are they another author again? I have a colleague here at Chapel Hill who, uh, by the way, is a Christian, who is writing a book that's arguing something that I, I had a hard time believing until I read his arguments. <laughs> and he's arguing that the gospel of John is written by somebody who makes you, who's wanting you to think that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and that he was not. And so it's what it would be a pseudepigraphon or the people, uh, scholars call these things pseudepigrapha. The, the English word for that is forgery. <laughs> scholars call these things pseudepigrapha because it sounds like sounds neutral and nobody knows what they're saying. <laughs> but it's a, it, the English word is for it's, it's when somebody writes a book claiming to be a famous person when they're not, you know, we call that a forgery. They used to call it. So call them pseudepigrapha. But anyway, he's our, this, my colleague, uh, Hugo Mendez is his name. He's writing a book that, uh, that's going to be published by Oxford that shows that the gospel of John claims to be written by an eyewitness, but it wasn't. And, but his argument, his interesting, really even more interesting argument than that is that he thinks that the author of first John was someone else who was trying to replicate the gospel of John. So you would think it was the same author. And that the author of Second John was trying to replicate First John, and that the and the third and that there's a series of these forgeries, uh, which I think is just terrifically interesting. It's a strange book. You're right. It's the exact same reflection I think I had back then. I didn't know what to do with it. So you would read it. You would go to 
events where there was somebody speaking who was a supposed expert and they'd talk you through what was happening absolutely back in the 80s and the 90s when I was probably at my most hardcore fundamentalist. It was a roadmap. It was a roadmap for what was to come. The Iraqi war, as you said, broke out. It was like, all right, this is game on. Get ready. It's Jesus time. You know, so this this was a... But even now you see it being co-opted by... Even the, you know, the whole QAnon space, talk, talking about end times, COVID, lockdowns, this is a roadmap that can show us through. If you had five minutes with one of these people who are using this book to actually justify their behaviour, their influence on others, that is in a more of a negative sphere, which generally it is, what would, you, what would your summary argument be to them about the way they're reading it? and misinterpreting it. My experience is that somebody who is completely driven by a conspiracy theory will not be convinced by any counter argument. And so I never try to argue with QAnon people because it's pointless. Within the Christian community, there tends to be a better chance of dealing with people unless they're, you know, I mean, another non-QAnon people are non just fundamentalists who really think this is talking about what's happening now. And I think one, one thing I try to do is to show that there, um, for one thing, that these futuristic predictions, they really should pay attention to the fact that they're always wrong. And that you can just, you can take, you can take an author like Jack Van Impey, who wrote these books year after year after year after year, arguing that now's the time. And he'll quote something in the news. And so 30 years later, he's writing the same book. Sometimes it's the same book, literally lifts paragraphs from his earlier books saying that now's the time. And surely anybody realizes this got to be a problem at some point. I mean, how long do you go on doing that? But the other thing is that there are clear indications in the text itself that uh, the author is not trying to write for the 21st century. The author, John, says he's writing to Christians in uh, Asia Minor, in the seven churches of Asia Minor, and presumably he's writing so that they'll understand something. (laughs) He's writing to them. He's got a message for them. And his message for them is it would be irrelevant what's going to happen in 21st century America. There are clear indications in the text that the author is not talking about Russia or uh, the Middle East, modern Middle East, or anything like that, that he's really talking about Rome in his day. There are clear indications of that. And so what can you do except for point people to evidence and, um, and let them see whether, they, you know, whether they're willing to consider something other than what they've, they've been raised on? David Bentley Hart who we we haven't interviewed him, but we certainly discussed some of his work. And he comes from a universalist position with his Christianity. And so he talks about the problems of the book of Revelation. He said that there were, for example, Martin Luther early in his career didn't think that it should be, have been included in the canon. And then later on, he actually did take that sort of futuristic reading as a, as a roadmap. But David Bentley Hart says, look, The book of Revelation, it's lost to time. The keys to interpretation for most of what's going on in the book of Revelation have been lost to time. Do you agree with that? Or do you think there are some clear markers that help us to interpret Revelation? I completely disagree with it. I think it's just not right. And, you know, it's not that I've 
figured them out. <laughs> you know, it's a, I think that there are very clear indications of what's going on in Revelation. And Revela- there are scholars, of course. There are uh, very fine historical scholars. Many of them are still committed Christians of some kind who have um, have shown clearly what's going on. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. You want an example? I'll give you an example. <laughs> so in Revelation chapter chapter 17, uh, John, the prophet, is shown this, this horrific vision of this grotesque woman off in a wilderness who is uh, sitting on a wild beast. Uh, she's called the, this is the whore of Babylon, as she's known. So she's she's sitting on this beast and she's dressed in this fantastic raiment and she's got gold and silver and jewels and she's holding a gold cup in her hand and she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus and she has a name on her head that says Babylon the Great and the beast she's sitting on has seven heads and ten horns and she and so John sees this thing and he has no idea what in the world is this. <laughs> and it's very funny when you read it in the King James Version, because the King James Version says, uh, John says, I looked upon her with great admiration. <laughs> admiration, you know, in King James time was uh, meant astonishment. <laughs> so and but but what always happens in these apocalypses almost always happens in these apocalypses is that there's an angel next next door who 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 explains it to him and he, the angel explains who this woman is and he says that she and you have hints in the text itself but but he explains look she's sitting on this beast that has the uh, that has seven heads those are the seven hills that the woman is seated on the name on her head is the name of a city Babylon. Babylon was the city in the Old Testament that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. In the time of John, writing in the 90s, Rome was the city that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. This woman is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Rome and its emperor, Nero, was the first to start martyring Christians and to shed their blood. And if an attentive reader hasn't quite gotten the point yet that this woman, this city, is sitting on seven hills, <laughs> anybody in the ancient world has no trouble because everybody knows that Rome is the, the city built on seven hills. And at the end, but at the end, in case you're not getting it, the the angel says, This woman is the great city that has taken over the world. <laughs> And so she's she's wearing all this gold and jewelry and stuff because she has and she's gotten all this by fornicating with the other nations. It means that Rome is exploit economically exploiting the entire world and has gotten filthy rich, which they did. And so this is a polemic against Rome. There's nothing hidden about this. Some people think that John's telling all these things in symbols so that because he's afraid that that he's being persecuted. And they're afraid that he's afraid that, well, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, I'll get arrested again or I'll be you know, executed. And so he's trying to tell it symbolically. But that actually is not it, because anybody in the ancient world would have known exactly what this is. And so you get you get things like that throughout the entire book. And once you once you realize what he's talking about, then you start finding other hints. So there are some mysterious things here, but I don't think the big picture at all is hidden. So you talk about Revelation as an apocalyptic text. 
Can you talk our audience through how you define apocalypse? Yeah, it's a really good it's a really good question, and there there are two components to it. There there is a a kind of there's a worldview that many Jews and then Christians had uh, right around this time. It's a view that you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you find it in a number of Jewish writings, not in the New, not in the Old Testament at near the time, and you find it in uh, John the Baptist and in Jesus, and it's a view held by Pharisees and Essenes. It's a wide view, widespread worldview that scholars have called apocalyptic or apocalypticism. Apocalypticism is the view that the world uh, that we live in has uh, two major components of it that are fighting each other. You have the forces of good and the forces of evil. And so it's not just that there's God at the top and some bad things that happen. There are actually cosmic forces that are doing battle and humans are caught in the battle. And the world is such a horrible place now because the forces of evil are gaining ascendancy. But but very soon, God is going to reassert his power and establish sovereignty over the earth again by destroying these forces of evil. And so the forces of evil are things like the devil and demons, but also natural disasters and just and sin and all, all bad people. They're all on the side of evil, but God is going to soon destroy them. This is a view that's taught by Jesus. It's taught by John the Baptist. It's taught by the Apostle Paul. It's taught by the book of Revelation. That's a worldview, apocalypticism. The term apocalypse refers to a literary genre that embodies that worldview. Whoever writes an apocalypse holds to an apocalyptic worldview, but people who hold most people who hold to an apocalyptic worldview don't write apocalypses. <laughs> if you see what I mean, I mean it's, it's, a, it's a it's a kind of literature. And what scholars one of the reasons that scholars have the historical view of Revelation that they have is because they realize that there are lots of books like this back there in the ancient world. Today, uh, at least when I was a fundamentalist, we read Revelation. We said, this is so weird. This is so bizarre that it's got to be inspired by God. I mean, how could anybody come up with this stuff? And it's it's unlike anything. You know, the closest thing to it would be like a science fiction novel or something, but it's not it's not a novel. It's not fiction. This is and so we we had nothing to compare it to. Unlike, you know, when you read novels or short stories. Or, you know, if you've, re- if you've read 30 science fiction novels, you kind of know how science fiction novels work. And if you read 30 limerick poems, you know how limerick poems work. And so when you, you then get a new limerick poem, you know how it's going to work. Or a new science fiction novel, you know how it's going to work because you know the genre. Scholars look at the genre. We have apocalypses that have come down to us from Judaism and Christianity. And we can analyze these. And by analyzing them, we see how they work. And they work pretty much like the book of Revelation does, which is it's a vision given to a seer uh, that is trying to explain the the horrible things happening on earth in light of heavenly realities. And the, pro, the these visions are always highly symbolic, highly metaphorical. They're mystical. Uh, they're called apocalypses because apocalypse means something like a, a, a revealing of secrets or a disclosure uh, of secrets. Uh, and so the prophet sees all these things and they have to be interpreted to him, which an angel normally interprets. And then the reader sees that everything is going according to plan. Even though, even though it's really terrible down here, it's all according to plan. And at the end, God will triumph. And that's, that's exactly how revelation works. In every case, these apocalypses, whether 
And so, you know, you can name these apocalypses, you know, second Baruch, fourth Ezra, the apocalypse of Abraham. I mean, just pick your, pick your apocalypse. You, you, you see how these things work and they are never predicting our future. They're talking about things happening in their own time. And that brings me to the idea of the sense of the imminence of the return of Jesus. One of the things that I think we see a lot of in the way that people unpack Revelation as a predictor is because they're seeing Revelation saying Jesus is coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. And that was actually a, a pivot point for me with my faith when I realized this book was written nearly 2,000 years ago. And what's soon? And I actually prayed to God saying, what did you mean by soon? <laughs> if you're saying you're coming soon and yet 2,000 years, and then people are saying, oh, a day is a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years is a day. Well, then why is God speaking to us at all? If we can't comprehend his sense of time, why even give us a mm. book? But yeah. but how do you respond to that? The idea of the imminence yeah. being, I guess, in their time. If, if this book was written for them, they really yeah. did believe that Jesus was coming in their time. And were they failed in their prophecies then? Are they failed apocalypticists? Yeah. So, you know, people do have, people have always struggled with this in Christianity. And you're right. I mean, the book of Second Peter is dealing with this problem about why it hasn't come yet. And that's why Second Peter says, well, you know, you're relying on your calendar, but with, with God's calendar, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And I, I tell people who tell me that that's why it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen you know, soon that, yeah, um, you know, you're probably right. So uh, it's probably going to happen, you know, three days from now. So in about the year uh, 25, 23, you can expect it <laughs> 3,000 years from now. So, you know, if a day says 1,000 years, that's, that's still the, the case. Two things to say about this. One is almost everybody who thinks that this is talking about it happening soon thinks that that means the rapture is going to happen soon. The book of Revelation never talks about a rapture. There's no rapture in the book of Revelation or anywhere else in the New Testament. People aren't going to believe me when I say that, and they're going to think it's one of those crazy things he's saying again. But in fact, it's not there. And I go in my book, I go through the passages that we all latched onto about the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, following the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive. Uh, those passages I show it is not talking about a rapture, and you can prove it. Just look at the context, which where Paul talks about it. The same with the Matthew passage where, you know, two will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. There will be two women that are, you know, grinding and one will be taken, one will be left. That is not talking about a rapture and you can prove it from the context. So, so we're not talking about a rapture here. Revelation is talking about Jesus coming back to destroy the world. He's not talking about him coming back in order to take people out of the world before the Antichrist comes. So there's that. John did think it was going to happen soon. And what he thought was going to happen soon is that the whore of Babylon was going to be destroyed. The whore of Babylon was Rome. Uh, John anticipated that God would be intervening in history to overthrow the Roman world and to provide uh, and to reward his own followers, the Christians, who are going to get all the power and all the wealth. The problem with Rome is that it has the power and wealth, and it's opposed to God. It's the people who are on God's side who are going to get the power and wealth. And Revelation is about how that's going to happen. It's not just if you're a Christian for Revelation. Many Christians will also be destroyed, according to John uh, of Patmos. But 
the Christians who take John's view of things uh, will be saved, and they will be the ones who are brought into the the uh, the city of God, the gold city of God. Uh, and John, at the end of his book, in six six times, says it's going to be soon. And he also tells us he's writing to Christians of his own day. <laughs> He's talking about the destruction of Rome in his own day. It's going to happen soon, and the kingdom of God will arrive here on earth. And yes, I mean, he was wrong about that. It didn't happen. And that's why that's why later Christians reinterpreted it to say he didn't mean it was going to happen right away. See, Bart, this is why you're a failed fundamentalist. You talk about <laughs> context, and that, that's, that's a rookie mistake. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to push you away from God. Don't you know that? Well, I've got to say, though, you know, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, I had professors that said, a text without a context is a pretext. <laughs> they said that, but then, you know, they weren't really paying attention to the context half the time. <laughs> Quite often I, I came across during my time in Christianity, but also after, these two very different Jesuses. And I think it, it really depended for me where I was within my faith journey. You know, early on, it was this warrior Jesus, this, you know, kick-ass Jesus who will come and save the world, take down the enemy and, you know, take them all out with his spiritual M16. Yeah, he's the American Jesus, by the way. Probably lives <laughs> boy, close is to he? Bart in the South, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, boy. There's a book here in America. I don't know if you've seen this book called Jesus and John Wayne. <laughs> yes. It's about the muscular Jesus. Yeah, it's a big Absolutely. deal. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Totally familiar with that book, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, I think later on my journey was the social justice Jesus, the gentle yeah. Jesus, the nurturing yeah. Jesus. Two yeah. very, very different Jesus. Do you do you see that the book of Revelation was something that had an influence on that, that warrior Jesus? Or has that come from some other, dare I say, context? Uh, it probably comes from a number of sources, but the book of Revelation is where you really see it uh, in its, its most bare form. There are a lot of uh, liberal Christian scholars who uh, who have a historical understanding of Revelation and understand that it's talking about Rome? Uh, they're they're committed Christians, but they that's their view. But they they have to explain to themselves and to others how to deal with the violence of this book. And the common claim among this kind of scholar it's a widespread view. It's a surprising view, I think, to most people who read Revelation, is that uh, these scholars claim that this is a nonviolent book and that Jesus is not being portrayed as violent in it. And one, one thing, one piece of evidence that they cite is that when John uh, is taken up into heaven and uh, goes into the throne room of God in chapter four and in, and in chapter five, he is told that God is holding a scroll in his hand that is sealed with seven seals. And this appears to be a book that un, un reveals the future of Earth. And nobody is able to break the seals. The logic there is that you have to be of equal authority to the person who made the seals before you can break the seals to open it up. And nobody's, of course, on God's standing. And so nobody can open the seals. But then an angel or a one of the one of the heavenly people up there tells John that the, there is one who could break it. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And uh, that's an image of Christ. 
And John starts looking around for this lion who's going to be able to break the seals. And he doesn't see a lion, but he sees this lamb, the lamb who was slaughtered. Uh, this is another image of Christ. And it's the slaughtered lamb then who breaks the seals. These scholars, these historical scholars, who many of whom have done really fine work on Revelation otherwise, claim that this shows that nonviolence is the key to this book, because Jesus is the one who suffered violence. And it's, it's as the one who suffered violence that, that, um, that, uh, that he, as, as that one, that he unfolds the future. I think that that is a terribly wrong reading of this book. <laughs> They're basically saying that the lion of Judah has become a lamb, and it's just the reverse. The lamb has become a lion. These disasters that happen on earth, military defeat, slaughter, starvation, drought, I mean, horrible tortures are released by Christ on the earth in Revelation. And the book of Revelation itself says that this book is about the wrath of God and the wrath of his Lamb. When you read Revelation, you know, earlier I said I don't think it's any longer, think it's, it's a book of hope. The word hope never occurs in the book of Revelation, and God is never said to love anybody in the book of Revelation. The words that get used a lot in Revelation with respect to God and Christ are vengeance, revenge, violence, wrath, blood. Those are the things this author is interested in. And so, you know, and people, people will always, people always respond by saying, um, well, look, it's symbolic, you know, and so you shouldn't take the symbolism too literally because, you know, it's just symbolic. And I, I agree it's symbolic, but why this kind of symbol? Why these violent images? You know, at one, at one point in this book, John is, John is upset with this woman in the city of Thyatira. And in chapter two, he writes, Christ, Christ dictates a letter to this church of Thyatira. And Christ tells John to write, he writes it down. And he condemns this woman who's a, who's a leader in the church, who is teaching people that it's okay to eat, to eat meat that's been offered to idols. So if, if, if meat's been sacrificed to an idol, it's okay. You know, they're not really gods. You can eat the meat. It's fine. And John thinks this is the worst thing he's ever heard. And Christ tells John to write down, he calls this woman Jezebel, who's this evil queen in the Old Testament. So it's a symbolic name. This is an evil person, this woman who's teaching this. Christ says he's going to take Jezebel and throw her on a bed, sometimes mistranslated, hospital bed. This is not a hospital bed. This is a bed because what happens next is men come and have sex with her. And he's, Christ is going to, uh, he's going to throw her on the bed. He's then going to afflict the men who have sex with her. And then he's, he, Christ is going to kill their babies. Christ is going to kill her babies. Okay. Let's say this is imagery. What kind of imagery is this? Why are you portraying Christ as somebody who is going to be throwing a woman on bed so she can have sex with other men, and then he's going to kill their babies. What kind of image is this? Like, you know, and you're, you're supposed to go away thinking that Jesus is a kind, loving Savior? So anyway, I, I think the muscular Christianity, the Christ the warrior thing, man, that is revelation, and it's not the Gospels. Do you think that, I mean, obviously we can only hypothesize, but 
that Christians. Oh, don't say that to the biblical scholar. We yeah. can only hypo- hypothesize. He may have good reason for believing this, Brian. No, no, Troy, I'm saying that you and I can only hypothesize. Bart, Bart will know this. But you, you can only hypothesize this. However, do you think Christian fundamentalism or Christianity of the last couple of hundred years would look very different if the book of Revelation wasn't included in the canon? Uh, absolutely. It would. We might not have even had fundamentalism the way we know it. I talk about this in the book. It's a weird, it's a weird confluence of things, that you, historical events that you just wouldn't know about unless you kind of dig deep into it. But the this whole idea of of the rapture and the kind of end times things that that I was raised on, at least, with, I don't know if you all did. You know, dispensational premillennialism and <laughs> things like that, but the, the dispensations and the rapture and the seven year tribulation and all of that. That started out in the 1830s with uh, John Newman Darby. And it happened at a time when also, when this kind of interpretation that Revelation is actually predicting the future. Uh, that started uh, taking off in the in the UK in Britain, right at the same time that there started to be an interest in the restoration of of Israel as a nation. So Christian Zionism started very early on in the 19th century, uh, before the kind of the major Zionist movement within Judaism, because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. And at the same time, you have um, you have concerns within Christianity because of the rise of sciences. So by the end of the 19th century, you've got scientists who are who are following Darwin, biologists, and you have geologists who are really giving you something like what the real age of the Earth is. You have this confluence of factors, and Revelation is a key component for all of this because people end up saying. The the reason you get a view of inerrancy that developed in the at the end of the nineteenth century, people tend to think that inerrancy has been around forever. Yeah, well, it's been around forever if the eighteen nineties is forever, <laughs> but it began really began seriously in the eighteen nineties, where every word had to be exactly right in the Bible, uh, because otherwise, you know, then Darwin would be right, um, and so this fed off of the idea that the end is coming soon, and it led to a literalist interpretation of the book of Revelation, kind of ironically, because it's a literalist interpretation of the symbols. <laughs> and it ended up, that is what leads to fundamentalism. So fundamentalism, as we know about it, develops in the 1890s because of this confluence of things. If, if readers, you know, people, there's no reason for anybody to take my word for this. There's a great, there's a great book, a kind of a classic book on this by a guy named Sandine, S-A-N-D-E-E-N, called The Roots of Fundamentalism. And he just shows it. He shows this is what's happening. I, I'm, I'm a bit lost in this, to be honest. I don't mean lost as in not understanding. I mean just lost in, in the idea. If the book of Revelation was not contained in the canon, what a different experience we would have. And of course, that draws us into the idea of how is the canon formed and, you know, should we, should we trust the decisions of these, of these people and these different councils? And I know you address this in some of your other work, but I do want to just ask you to sort of elaborate for the sake of our audience, how is the Jesus of the Gospels, whether that's Jesus just from the book of John or whether that's Jesus from the Synoptic Gospels as well, how is this Jesus so different from the book of Revelation Jesus? And how is his message so very different? 
Yeah, well, that that's that's really the kind of the, the key question that uh, I was kind of indirectly getting at uh, is because the about you know the 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 warrior Jesus versus the kind loving Jesus and um, the difference is really quite stark. This is how I this is actually how I end my book. I think that the Jesus of the Gospels is taking what at the time was a countercultural view of things throughout the uh, Greek and the Roman and the Jewish worlds. At the time, what was valued in terms of society was people who had power and people who had wealth uh, were seen as superior, and everybody wanted the power and the wealth. And so striving for power and wealth was seen as a good. Um, that's what people should do. Jesus said that, in fact, uh, one should not be concerned about wealth at all, and that you should help others rather than using your resources just for yourself. In fact, you should sell everything and give to the poor. You should abandon everything for the poor. And in terms of uh, power, you should not be one who tries to lord it over others. You should serve one another. You, you, should, uh, you, you should give of yourself to others, and you should not dominate anybody, but you should serve them. So this is, it's countercultural. Christianity as a whole ended up not accepting that message. I mean, many people accept the message, of course, but at least in you know in this country, uh, the prosperity gospel is thriving. That God wants you to get rich, and uh, God wants you to take over the government, and wants you to make all the decisions and have all the power. That view is not the view of Jesus, but it is the view of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus does not Jesus does not have a problem with wealth. The problem Jesus has with wealth is that the wrong people have it. The Romans have it, and it should be the Christians. And so what happens is the Roman Empire gets wiped out, and the Christians inherit the city of God. I think a lot of people haven't paid enough attention to the city of God, that descend, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven. This thing is 1,500 miles cubed. So 1,500 miles wide on each side and high. I think what you're looking for about there is deep and wide, deep and wide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy, is it deep and wide. It goes from, I mean, in the America, it would go from New York to Oklahoma City, and it'd go from Miami to Montreal, and it'd be that high. And it is, the city is solid gold. And the this is where the Christians are going to live, with uh, jewels as its foundation and gates of pearl. In other words, they're going to be so far more wealthy, you can't imagine how much more wealthy the Romans are. And they are going to rule the world with a rod of iron. They're not going to serve the world. The rest of the world is going to bring, bring all their goods to them and serve them. So the Christians are going to get all the power and all the wealth. And I, that is, that's the opposite of what Jesus talks about uh, in the Gospels. So it relates to your question about how did this thing get in, <laughs> because it is so contrary to what to to the portrayal of Jesus Himself in in all the Gospels. But people don't see it, and the reason people don't see it is because when you when you buy a Bible, you buy one book, and it's between two hard covers. And normally, when you buy a book between two hard covers, you expect it to be a consistent book. If you read a, a novel by Charles Dickens, you don't expect chapter one and chapter two to be completely contradictory to each other, 
or the points of view in the first section be at odds with the points of view in the second section. You expect a consistency because you've got the same author. And if you assume that God's the author, and this is a book between two hard covers, then you figure out a way to read Revelation as if it's saying the same thing as the Gospel of Mark. And man, it is not saying the same thing as the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, well, that's why there's so much effort to harmonize. And and it sounds to me like you're saying that this picture of Jesus, you know, when we're reading that and seeing this picture of Jesus that comes through the Gospels, we're not expecting the capital city from the Hunger Games to come down at the end, you know, um, and, and that's really what you're, what you're saying, that the, the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation looks like. But I am so thankful that you came on our podcast. I'm so thankful that you've made the time for, for your Australian audience. We were going to, over the next few months, actually start to unpack some of what you bring forth. We were going to do a bit of a series on, on the Bible, and then we discovered your podcast, your huh. Misquoting Jesus podcast, and realized, okay, we don't need to do that now. Bart's doing that himself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the podcast and then some of the other things that you're doing and some of the other ways that people can connect with your work? And also, how do we find this book, this new book on Revelation? Okay, so uh, yeah, so I've got my pre-publication copies here, and so this is uh, I just just got my hardbacks, which is a very exciting time. It's coming out on here. It's coming. I assume it will be in Australia at the same time, March twenty uh, first, and it wherever people buy books. I mean, it, you know, you can easily get it online, either from well, just from Amazon or from Simon and Schuster's, the publisher. And if bookstores don't have it, they could order it. It'll be it'll be in distribution. So as to um, my podcast, this is part of a new advent, new new venture that I've started. You know, I've really gotten increasingly hooked on the idea of reaching broader audiences for things. And the podcast is part of that. So uh, it's a weekly podcast. It comes out every Tuesday. It's called the Misquoting Jesus podcast with Bart Ehrman. Uh, Misquoting Jesus was the name of one of my early uh, books for a general audience. It's about, the podcast is just about everything dealing with the New Testament and early Christianity. I cover stuff in there that go up probably through up to Constantine or into the fourth century. But so far, most of it has been New Testament things. Uh, I get interviewed on a particular topic. And then about once a month or so, I interview someone else, another scholar. I've recently uh, interviewed uh, Mark Goodacre, for example, on the, um, on the Gospel of Thomas. And I interviewed a friend of mine, Jeff Syker, uh, who is uh, my my one probably my closest friend, who's a Presbyterian minister, <laughs> who on whether the Bible condemns homosexuality. And so we deal we deal with that kind of thing. And I've done several things on the Book of Revelation and so forth. So I said it's part of a bigger venture. I've got this thing. I've uh, doesn't have a whipping name. It's just called the Bart Ehrman Professional Services. But if they look up my website, uh, bartehrman.com, they'll see it there that it's connected with the podcast as part of it. But I also been doing online courses. Uh, and so a couple of weeks ago, I produced a uh, eight lecture online course just on the Gospel of Mark, for example. And I've done I've done courses on the Old Test parts of the Old Testament, parts of the New Testament, and I'll just do uh, various courses and lectures that are available there at barterman.com. The other thing I'll say though isn't related to uh, me per well it is, but it's not really per se. It's um, I've got a blog that I would like people to know about, which is, it's just called the Barterman blog, and uh, people can find it at ermanblog.com. 
I've been doing this thing for almost 11 years. Uh, I publish uh, a, a blog post between 1,000 and 1,500 words five times a week, every week. I haven't missed for 10, you know, over 10, almost 11 years now. Uh, so thousands of posts and people can comment on them. And I answer every question I get. <laughs> and it's like, so to, to join this blog though, people have to pay a small membership fee. I don't do this to make money. I don't make, I've never made a penny off of it. I use the money. I, I give the money to charity. I give the money to charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. Uh, this last year, the blog, the Bart blog raised uh, over $500,000 and we give it all to charities. And so people should, I'd like people to know about it because it's, you know, it's a nice thing. <laughs> it's a nice thing. And I do, I do special events and there are different tiers. Somebody can join at, at upper tiers. Like I do webinars for members at, at upper tiers and things. And so, so, so if people would just check that out, that'd be great. The Bartram blog. How much money have you made out of the blog in terms of what you well all together we've since I started we've made about two million uh, but it's it's growing and growing last year we made half a million just last year and we're so it started out when when I started this thing in 2012 I thought you know I'll probably make about you know like ten thousand dollars a year or something and then I'll give it a couple of years and see how it goes but we just started making more and more and it's just grown and grown and so I'm hoping we'll pass you know, half go well past the half a million mark this year. So I just want to be clear, you've made millions of dollars off biblical scholarship, but instead of taking that money for yourself, you've sold it all and given it to the poor. So you're a pretty good model of the person that you study, really. Well, I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, when I get to the pearly gates, I want to say, hey, look, you know, I did have this blog. <laughs> I don't think it'll help, but uh, <laughs> no, look, I'm a, I am a firm believer. I, I'm, I'm not a good, I'm not a good Christian. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. And, but I do think that the, the, the gospel message is right, that we who have resources should help those who don't. And I'm firmly committed to that. And so it takes an enormous chunk of my life to do this. Uh, and I really, I don't get a penny. But I, you know, I don't want to take credit for it. It's just like, you know, I've got a fantastic life. I mean, why wouldn't I help people? <laughs> I don't get it. You know why people don't. But, but I, so it is to raise, it's completely to raise money for charity. The only thing I get out of it is a headache. <laughs> so. I was going to say, that's a huge commitment, Bart, like to answer every question that comes your way. So, you know, hats off to you. And in between there, you've managed to write books as well and live a life and, be part of a, a marriage. I mean, that, that's that's a huge amount of work. So good on you. Well, thank you. Yeah, and the problem is I have a day job. <laughs> I have to. I also teach. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, the thing is, it's all good. I mean, God. I mean, what if for somebody who's passionate about what they do? What could be better than this? I mean, it's fantastic. Oh, but just thinking about your books, and of course, you know, we, we encourage people. To, to have a look at your new book on Revelations called Armageddon. But just thinking about our audience, if they're new to you, obviously they can go to your blog, obviously they can go to your online courses, obviously they can go to your podcast. But what I'm sort of challenged by is in terms of your popular books, where do we start? If I'm, if I'm new to you, what would you say, hey, read this one first? Well, I'm not really sure. You know, books are kind of like your children. You, you love every one of them. 
<laughs> and so, uh, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites. The the book that has sold the best, the, the best selling book I have that people, I think is usually most people's entree uh, to my work is the book called Misquoting Jesus. Now in England, they gave it a different name and I don't know if it's what it's called in Australia. In England, they called it Whose word is it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like a game show or something. People find it really interesting because it deals with the fact that we don't have the original writings of the New Testament. We don't have, you know, when Mark wrote his gospel, Mark, we don't have that thing he wrote. We don't have copies of Mark for a very long time. The first co- first partial copy we have of Mark is probably about 140 years after he wrote it. And the first full copy we have is about 300 years after he wrote it. And it's being copied all those years by different people who are copying copies of copies of copies of copies. And everybody's making mistakes along the way. <laughs> and so how do you know what the original said? And so that's what that's what that book is about, is how scholars have tackled that problem and how they try to deal with it. But it comes up with this kind of realization, oh, my God, what if we don't know in this passage what the author said? Hmm. That would be interesting. But we just want to thank you. We we are at time, but I think we could talk a very, very long time. But we have just touched on a few things. I think, you know, some of the personal who is Bart, but also your new book and the stuff in between. It's been an incredibly enlightening conversation, I think, too. But also just we've learned things. There's no doubt about that. But, but also just the – you've – Got my brain kick-started very early in the morning, and I do feel that I'm prime for the day, but there's a lot of food for thought in there. I think you, you really build a bridge between what was previously inaccessible scholarship to the mainstream, and, and even we two having you know some theological training as well, sometimes that is inaccessible to to the majority of us. And so, yeah, I, I really appreciate the fact that you have taken time. I just assumed that writing popular books was just more publishing, which is what academics were going to be encouraged to do. And even to hear the fact that this is something that has potentially cost you something to, to build these bridges is just an awesome thing to do. So I'm really grateful. We had Philip Yancey on as as another as another writer who we were excited to have because once upon a time we were right into him. But I'm right into your work now. And I said to my wife, I'm so excited about, I'm, I'm going to start to gush now, Bart, if I haven't already, but just so good to meet you because you really did help me with my deconstruction in, in the early 2000s. I, I came across your work um, and, and then every time you would release a book, it just seemed to be, you know, right on time. Okay. Yeah. That's what do I do with this issue? And then, you know, Bart writes a book, even to the point of addressing the mythicist position of did Jesus exist? I mean, I fell down that rabbit hole for a while as well. And then it was your arguments about Jesus speaking Aramaic that just went, come out of that rabbit hole and let's join mm. the, you know, mm. the, the majority now and, and take the position that he probably did exist. Anyway, I, I know I've gushed, but I just wanted to say all that to you because you are doing such a good thing in helping people deconstruct. You've had such an impact on the evangelical space. And we are so glad that you made time for our podcast, but thank you so much. Well, thank you, thank both of you because uh, it's been it's been uh, it's been really great, and uh, I love the idea of the, of your podcast. May your uh, may your uh, viewer tribe increase. <laughs> Thanks again, Bart, and you have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. 
If you'd like to connect with the I Was A Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 